tonight we have with us Annalee Newitz, who writes fiction and nonfiction about the, at the intersection of science, technology, and culture. Their first novel, Autonomous, won the Lambda Literary Award and was nominated for the Nebula and Locus Awards. Their book, Scatter, Adapt, and Remember, was nominated for the LA Times Book Award. They are currently a contributing opinion writer at the New York Times. Previously, they were the founding editor of io9 and served as the editor-in-chief of Gizmodo and as the tech culture editor at Ars Technica. They have written for numerous national publications and co-host the Hugo Award-winning podcast, Our Opinions Are Correct. What a great name, so I have to go <laughs> listen to that. Sarah Parkak is an archaeologist, Egyptologist, and remote sensing expert who has used satellite imaging to identify potential archaeological sites in Egypt, Rome, and elsewhere in the former Roman Empire. She is a professor of anthropology and director of the Laboratory for Global Observation at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, where you can see she is right now. She co-directs survey and excavation projects in the Fayum, Sinai, and Egypt's East Delta. So without further ado, they're here tonight to discuss Anna Lee's new book, Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age. Welcome to you both. Hello, thanks so much, Maria, for that great introduction. Um, I just wanted to start by saying a few things about the book, and then we're going to go right into chatting about our work. Um, here's the book. It's snuggled up beside me on the desk. Um, Four Lost Cities is the result of about seven years of research that I've been doing um, as I traveled and as I met archaeologists and learned about uh, ancient cities. And it's really a look at new discoveries in archaeology that shed light on why people build cities, but also why they abandon them. And initially, the book was going to be more about how cities can last forever. And the more I learned, the more I realized that most cities don't last forever and that actually there's something very important about thinking about why people leave cities. Um, and the more that we've learned uh, through a lot of the new archeological techniques that Sarah and I will be talking about tonight, the more we understand uh, the lives of people who've built cities. So not just the kings and queens who ruled over them, not the emperors and the, the chieftains, um, but the people who are actually like building streets and like carrying water and, you know, lifting heavy stuff in order to build walls, the more that we learn about those people, the more that it became clear to me that the act of abandoning a city uh, is a form of uh, agency that people take as it's a way of, of rejecting a kind of life that is no longer appealing to them. And so a lot of the book is about what draws people to cities, but then what kind of be, what makes them fed up with cities and what makes them say, no, you know what, I'd rather leave than stay here. Um, <clears throat> and there's a couple of um, themes that you'll see that, that we'll talk about tonight uh, in, in terms of what kind of leads to that. Um, the other thing that I really wanted to um, emphasize about where this book came from is that uh, I had been writing a lot about environmental science um, before I really dove into talking about cities. Um, and cities are kind of on, in my mind, I think of urbanism and cities as part of 
environmental science in a lot of ways. And that the study of the environment today has to be in part a study of urbanism and how cities change environments because basically cities and suburbs are human ecosystems. They're ecosystems that we've created. Um, they feed on natural ecosystems and of course they can harm natural ecosystems. And so to understand the environment, uh, I kept coming back to trying to understand cities and kind of vice versa. And so this is, this is in a sense a book about humans reshaping the world, but also it's about which humans are the ones who actually do that reshaping. So the people, like I said, who are actually building cities as opposed to the ones who are kind of giving orders. Um, so one of the people whose work has completely inspired me is Sarah Parkak. So I'm so freaking delighted that she's here. I've been following her work. Um, I love her book, Archaeology from Space, which all of you should buy. Um, and she's just been a pioneer in trying to understand where, like how cities are built in the ancient world and where they are and how we can use archaeology, how we can use space technology to, to locate them. So um, I'm just, I'm just thrilled that, that I get to chat with her today. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, uh, Sarah, let's, let's chat. Why don't you start the interrogation and then I'll kind of interrogate you a little too. It's it's gonna be a, it's gonna be a big a big it's gonna uh, be a mutual uh, interrogation love, 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 mutual love love fest tonight I I think um, <laughs> like like Italy I've I've been a fan of their work for years and years and years and um, when they asked me uh, to to read the book early um, it was such an enormous honor and I you know even though this is the work that I do like it's so thrilling for me to um, to be able to take a step back and see how other people perceive the work that we're doing. Um, so this is just a, a huge, a huge honor. So we'll jump, jump right in. Um, yeah. So, and this is really exciting because I never, I never get to do these interviews. So for everyone watching, this is like, this is the first time I've ever done one of these. So kind of bear, bear with me. Yeah. <laughs> I get to, I get to be I have interviewed you in this situation. Yes. So yeah, yes, yes, yes. so easy. Uh, <laughs> not a chance. Um, so, so you obviously have an enormous passion for, for archaeology. Um, uh, with all the amazing work you do with your your wonderful op-eds, your your um, your your paper, your journalism um, papers, and of course this tremendous book. And so, for anyone out there listening from an academic institution, um, can someone please give Annalee an honorary archaeology degree? They have earned it. Um, <laughs> so, if you could start by telling telling us like, what pulled you into archaeology, what what drew you in, and when and and why. It's really complicated. Um, you, you told me earlier that you were going to ask me that. And I was like, gosh, when did I get really interested? I think it was because, um, so when I was in grad school, so I already have a PhD that I've sort of vaguely used, um, which is in the humanities. And initially when I started my PhD, I really wanted to do um, the kind of early medieval period. I was really interested in Anglo-Saxon and the Anglo-Saxon world. Um, and I was really interested in, in studying sort of the medieval world uh, of English speaking Europe, basically. And I, I did that for a bit and then my, my studies took me elsewhere. But the thing that I really loved about um, medievalists was that they weren't afraid to be radically interdisciplinary. And when you're studying, you know, medieval texts and when you're studying the world of 
you know, the first millennium, um, you can't be picky. Like you can't be like, oh, I'm only going to study literature or I'm only going to study paintings because you have a limited amount of material. And so people would, you know, they would study pop culture. They would study nursery rhymes. They would study garbage. They would study um, clothing and literature and all of that stuff. And um, for me, because I was in a literature department, I found that incredibly liberating because um, I too wanted to study pop culture and material culture in the real world. Um, and I think as I worked on science journalism, I again was drawn back to archeology span because archeology, span again, not afraid to combine the humanities with the sciences. And I love that. I feel like that's the most vital place to be if we're trying to understand humanity's history. So, um, so it's really because I hate disciplinary boundaries. <laughs> Um, but also, of course, like any normal thinking human being, I love learning about ancient history and I love being transported to other civilizations just to, to understand our own context in the present, but also, I mean, frankly, as a form of escapism, I think it's, you know, it's, um, it's just fascinating. So, you know, as, as someone who recently wrote a, a book for the general public for the for the first time, I've become absolutely fascinated with um, with the process of writing. And this book, um, while obviously very closely connected to your, your work as a journalist, is a was a bit of a departure from your your um, although lots of connections with your um, fiction writing, uh, which everyone needs to, to get Annalise fiction books are they're extraordinary. Um, you know, what, talk to me about if that process was any different. And you, you said you're doing this for, for seven years, which means you were like writing fiction alongside this as well. And the idea of writing more than one book at a time, I, can't, I, I couldn't ever do that. Yeah, so, it's, I don't recommend it. Would you mind sharing kind of your, your process? And, yeah. And, and um, I, yeah. Yeah, I really, I was in fact, um, in the middle of writing um, For Lost Cities, I wrote a novel, Future of Another Timeline, which is about time travel. Um, and it's a direct outgrowth of working on archaeology because when you're doing archaeology, you want a time machine. You, that's like the thing that I kept wishing for was like, okay, if I could just go back to Cahokia in like the year, like year 1000, that'd be fine. Um, and just see how it looked, you know, and I wouldn't need to talk to anyone. I wouldn't interfere, you know, a very um, prime directive about it, but I just want to see it. So um, I took a lot of that feeling and frustration and put it into my fiction writing. But I think that, um, and, and this happens to me all the time, like my, my nonfiction work, my scientific writing always feeds into my science fiction writing, um, sometimes to an embarrassing degree. But I think that the thing that the two forms of writing share in common is needing to build a world for the reader. And I think this is especially important with archaeology. And it's something that you do in your book, um, Archaeology from Space, where you kind of create these scenes where we meet people and we kind of walk around in the past. And then we kind of pull back and we're like, okay, but how do we know all this? Like, how do, the, how do, how do scientists and how do archaeologists um, understand the way people lived from the evidence that's been left behind? Um, and so... I, because I, in between writing my two big pop science books, I wrote two novels. I think that Four Lost Cities has a lot more just narr narrative um, 
density. Like there's just a lot of sort of me telling people this is how it was, this is what life was like in ancient Rome. Um, as far as we know, <laughs> um, of course, there's a lot of ambiguity and a lot of stuff we don't know. Um, but yeah, it's, I think that's one of, I mean, do you, don't you find that that's part of the pleasure of archeology span is like uncovering enough stuff to the point where you're like, okay, I think I know what their bathroom looked like or like what it looked like, you know what I mean? Or like, okay, the street probably looked like this. Yeah, I, I tell people when you're like when you're on an archaeological site, you know, it's like you're you're using augmented reality goggles as an yes. archaeologist, and you're and you're and you're just I'm walking around and like the site behind me is a site called Lisht. It dates to almost four thousand years ago. It was Egypt's middle kingdom capital, and even though it's sort of d dust and ruins and crumbly pyramids and little bits of things sticking out, I'm walking around something a lot more like uh, the the cemeteries of New Orleans. Um, than, than what is there today. And so this is one of the things kind of leading, connecting back to your point about, about your science fiction writing. Like I thought one of the, the, the best parts of your book for me was the world building that you did both in the past, but also in the present. Um, I, I get frustrated often when, whether it's on documentaries or reading, like people don't quite capture the essence and the ethos of what it's like on a dig and you just you pulled us there and the way that you describe the characters, well, I'm going to ask you, as you know, a question later about, about, about kind of what, what, what it's like getting to meet, meet um, as, as crazy archaeologists, but just that, that sense of being there, that thrill, the, even finding a little like fragment of a pot, it's so cool. Um, and yeah, like for me too, like I, I, writing archaeology from space in these scenes, like I, I'd never written fiction before. And so that was such a treat for me to get to, I guess, kind of flip the other way. Like it, it, the, the, the work I'd done imagining sites poured out in, into that writing and something I, I would love to, to, do, to do again. Yeah. And I find, you know, a lot of archaeologists do read science fiction and fantasy. You know, it's just like, or they, or they love, you know, like a lot of archaeologists um, that I've met really love apocalyptic stories, um, maybe because they're so used to excavating places that have kind of, um, you know, undergone so much transformation that it's almost like they've been through an apocalypse. Um, so yeah, I think, I think there's a piece, I think that great archeologists are in a sense doing fiction writing a little bit. I mean, extremely evidence-based fiction writing. <laughs> right. Right. Cause yeah, it's like, it's like the, it's like the puzzle of, you know, if you imagine the the King Tut, the famous gold um, sculpture, and and you only have like two little fragments. You have to imagine what's there, and we're only ever dealing with a what, less than one percent of the evidence. So how do you build this world and try to justify it in the in the most meaningful way possible? Um, yeah. So yeah, it's 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 really fun, and I think I think I wish my field understood like just how creative they are. I wish more people, more archaeologists, would write fiction. I think we're really, really good at it. Um, so, okay, so, so um, kind of a, I'm fascinated by the, the four cities you chose, but I'm also incredibly fascinated by um, what you chose not to write about. Like, were there cities where you're like, do I do Cahokia or do I do Mohenjo-Daro? Like what, what, you know, do, do you hem and haw? What, what things, do, or did you write about a city and you're like, I can only do four, what, what, why? It was, I mean, there was a process of elimination where I was kind of, um, you know, auditioning cities. And I have done a lot of writing about ancient cities in my uh, journalism. So I was familiar, I mean, 
in a glancing way with a lot of different sites and a lot of different archaeological um, excavations. And so, uh, I mean, I, I, I knew kind of which places fascinated me on a superficial level. And then I had to kind of dig a bit more, haha, dig, um, to see, I mean, a lot of things. Like, for one thing, this there's a lot of logistics involved, as you well know, from working in Egypt, where there's just some sites that I wasn't going to have access to, or it was going to be um, just way too much, um, too much difficulty for me to, to get there and to, and to really see it. Um, so I needed to have places that I knew I could get to, and I needed to have places that um, I thought represented four different urban traditions. And so the cities in the book, uh, Chitalhuyuk, which is a Neolithic city in central Turkey, uh, Pompeii, which is a kind of infamously destroyed city uh, in the Roman Empire, destroyed by a uh, volcano, Angkor, which was the capital of the Khmer Empire in the um, you know, 1000s-ish time, and Cahokia, which was also at the center of an empire in the Americas in North America, uh, the Mississippian, well, not an empire, but the Mississippian civilization, I think is probably a better way to put it. Um, and I, so each of these is in a radically different region. Uh, they were dealing with different environmental concerns in, in building the cities. They're separated by thousands of years in time. So I really liked that symmetry of having cities that kind of spoke for they kind of became spoke cities for traditions, urban traditions in different parts of the world. And there were cities that I wish that I could have done and that maybe in part two, um, I will do. I would have loved to have done Cairo, for example, but Cairo's still alive. It hasn't been abandoned yet, so it doesn't quite fit. Um, but I really love, the thing I love about Cairo and that I find fascinating about a lot of cities is um, the way that they tend that some cities have outlasted multiple empires. Um, and Istanbul is another city like that. Um, Xi'an in Western China is another city like that, um, where they've been different cities at different times. And I, a lot of the cities in my book are similar. Um, uh, Chitalhuyuk uh, went through a number of transformations. Um, so did actually all of them, Pompeii, Angkor, Cahokia, they all changed dramatically during their lifespans. And I think that's something that we forget when, when we, you know, I think when we look back at an archeological site, it's often tempting to say like, well, it's just frozen in time. This is what the city was like, instead of saying, actually, you know, the city lasted for a thousand years. In the case of Chitalhuyuk, that's true. And over that thousand years, yeah, it changed a lot. <laughs> so it's not the same city as it was when it was first um, begun. And so I love, that's one of the things I love about having cities that were abandoned because at least there's a kind of, even if it's a gradual ending, it's still kind of an ending. So you can say like, here's how it started. Here's how it's going. Here's how it ended. It sort of sounds like an internet meme, but um, that's, uh, that was part of the appeal for me. And so the cities that let, that were left on the cutting room floor, it was either because logistically I knew I would not be able to have access or because they were still alive. So <laughs> they hadn't been abandoned. I love, I love the idea of these, these massive cities as palimpsests and we forget, we forget that everything is layered and even, you know, even going into 
downtown Birmingham, you know, there are parts of, of city streets that are uncovered and there are the cobblestones right there. And you peek down and you see layers and layers. first there's the asphalt, then there's the brick, then there's the cobblestone. It's the same with, with San Francisco. Um, it's just, it's fascinating. And you're right, we're, 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 such, we're so focused, we're such creatures that are focused on the present and we don't see all this change um, that's going on constantly. And that's one of my favorite parts about, about untangling these, these um, these these knots of, of archaeological sites because you see all these walls at different angles and it's confusing and here is oh there's like three distinct building phases here and that's over the course of one person's lifetime what is what are the implications over a hundred years or, or, or a thousand years and I also have to say when you said I, I, I was auditioning cities I had this vision of like America's next top model except it's it's Annalise next top city and like <laughs> it would totally nail the dancing and singing I think so, yeah, I, I feel like, you know, it wasn't about ranking. It was really that I was, I was waiting it in other ways. There was no best city. All, all cities are awesome. Like I've, I don't think I've ever met a city that I didn't like. I've met cities that have been horribly abused and neglected by their leadership. And those are often cities that in some ways are even more awesome because people continue to live there and, and survive and thrive despite being screwed over by their government. So, um, so all, all cities are great. They are. I, I love, uh, yeah, Cairo. Well, we could talk about Cairo for hours, but I should dive into my next question. <laughs> so, okay, so this is incredibly biased and utterly self-serving question. Um, you know, one of the many things that struck me about your book, um, as I said before, were, were, were the, just the ways that you described the characters of, of archaeology working at all these sites, all these different projects. Um, and you, you did such a brilliant job of capturing the essence of, of the people that are, are my world. Um, and, and full disclosure, I am good friends with some of the folks that you described in your, in your book. But it's weird. It's like everywhere I go in the world, whether it's Peru or Egypt or India or the US, it, it doesn't matter. Like, like, I feel at home when I'm with other archaeologists. And, you know, from the outside in, kind of looking at, um, at, at us, do you feel like there's a, a, a similarity between archaeologists you've met um, or and people who devote their lives to running around chasing after pottery fragments? Um, I knew you were going to ask me this and I was like, I, I'm going to have to be very careful in my response. Um, I think there's some commonalities. Uh, and, and because I did these four very different um, sites, I met, I would say, four different types of archaeologists because different types of people are drawn to different settings and to different types of um of civilizations i think and so i mean one thing this is going to sound very superficial but like every archaeologist has a hat that they're that's their special hat because like most archaeological excavations are taking place in hot areas they usually take place in um dry months or summer months because people that's when people have time because they're teaching in the fall and the spring um but also because these are tend to be times when they're not going to get rained on as much um at least in some parts of the world um so everyone has a sun hat and it's funny because uh archaeologists who work in the americas um tend to wear baseball hats and you know, turn it around because as you're you know aiming your face at the ground which is where your face is all day you want your you know you want the back of your neck to be covered. Um, but in other places, you know, people like in uh, Cambodia, of course, people working at Angkor often wear cremas, which are just the national kind of uh, head covering and scarf that people wear. They wear it in all different ways. Um, and they're actually fantastic for 
getting the sun off of your neck. Um, and, uh, so, and then in others, you know, people just wear like a fedora, like you do. <laughs> um, so I think that there's like a sartorial taxonomy <laughs> of archaeologists. Um, but to be more serious in answer to your question, I think that, um, you know, archaeologists tend to be people who really love both ancient tomes in libraries and are super outdoorsy. And so it's this weird freakish combination that you don't see a lot in academia of like people who are like, no, no, I really like to just sit inside and read, but also I don't mind climbing deep into a hole and getting my entire body covered in flies and mud and like, you know, snake bites or whatever. So there's, um, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting combo. It's like kind of jock, kind of nerd all mushed together. Um, and like I said before, they, you know, archaeologists are like a blend of science and humanities. So they're a very um, unusual scholarly discipline. Um, and uh, I also, they're good at partying. Like almost every archaeologist I met, like they're like, hey, let's have some beer. You know, like there's always a moment of like, once you, you know, once you're kind of integrated into the team, there's, there's always some late night party or like some bar that everybody goes to. And um, so in that way, uh, you know, they're very, um, yeah, like they just, they want to hang out. They want to be in the outdoors. They want to party and they want to learn about ancient civilization. So that's um, <laughs> uh, not exactly like Indiana Jones, um, but you know, there's a little bit, a little bit of that. Well, the gin, gin and tonics for any Egypt are purely medicinal, purely. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard that. Um, yeah. yeah. And I've heard, of course, that wine and beer are also quite medicinal, um, yes. you know, but that doesn't explain why, you know, at, you know, the um, archaeological association meetings, which are held, you know, in hotels, why we still need to have that medicinal. I don't know. I mean, you got you always have to be prepared, right? That's right. That's right. For anything. <laughs> for anything. So, mm -hmm. so let's, let's let's talk about some of these amazing adventures that you had all over the world. Um, and I would love to know, um, you know, what were the parts of, of being on these digs that you enjoyed the most? And if you were an archaeologist, um, what, what would you want your specialization to be? What, what drew you in the most? Um, that's a really good question. So um, my access was very different at the different sites. Um, and it was quite interesting to see all of these are all of this, the cities that I look at in this book are quite well known. Um, and the excavations taking place there are very well-funded, um, very um, large. So it's not, um, in a sense, I saw only uh, one kind of archeological excavation. Cause of course there's lots of people who do excavations uh, in areas that are less well-known or that aren't cities. Um, so I, in some places like at Cahokia, which is uh, in, um, basically outside East St. Louis and Southern Illinois, um, I was able to actually participate in, in the excavation. Um, I mean, in a very minor way, like they, they sort of trained me how to do shovel scraping. So I could do like basically the work of an undergraduate. Um, and so, you know, I wasn't, you know, doing anything particularly important. I was doing grunt work, um, which I loved. I love getting, I love getting dirty and for, for science. Um, and uh, I really liked the camaraderie. I liked that sense of excitement when we found stuff, but I also liked 
the incremental discoveries because when you're at a site, of course, it's not like the National Geographic documentary where it's like, aha, we found it. You know, it, it's actually like three days of like, did you find something? No, it's just a root. Did you find something? No, it's just another rock. You know, and then finally, oh my gosh, we found a pottery shirt or like we found um, uh, actually at, at Cahokia, one of the things that um, the archaeologists found was the impression of a grass mat on the floor, um, which is quite, you, I mean, you never find grass mats because of course they don't, you know, they don't last very long. Uh, but the fact that we were able to find that impression, which you could see it looked like a pattern like pressed into the mud. Um, and that was just amazing. Like it was just this fragile thing that had left behind this print and that let us again, imagine what it would have been like to live in one of these houses at Cahokia to see, oh, they would have had these really nice mats on the floor or um, they would have had grass baskets that had beautiful patterns. Um, and so I really loved that aspect of it. Um, and then I think, you know, at places like, Chit at a place like Chitalhoyuk, which is so old, it's a 9,000 year old city that lasted for almost 2000 years. Um, it's, you know, there's a sense, it's just pure wonderment when you go there because it's so, the excavation is so big. It's about the size of a football field, but it's also about as deep as a football field because they've just dug all the way down in this mound, which is the mound itself is the city because the city is built from mud brick. And it's, as you know, because this happens all the time in, in Egyptian cities, um, the city forms a, a mound eventually. Um, and so being able to like, you're basically when you're looking into this hole or into this excavation um, block, you're looking into history and it's like, it's sort of the Carl Sagan moment of like, you know, there's a million stars out there. It's like, there's a million lives that were here. And like, we can see these, these traces of what they've left behind. And so it was, um, I, I just, I'm like grateful that I got to, to go and see it. Um, and so I think, um, and then, and then at Angkor, it's such a huge site. It's like, you get to see just this massive um, temple complexes. And so each, each site has its own delights, like either it brings out awe or you, um, or a sense of like the size of the city um, or, um, or like at Cahokia, you know, because I actually got to participate, I really did get to like see um, what a real discovery looks like. And, and as I said, I mean, it's, the discoveries are both bigger than you ever imagined and also smaller than you ever imagined, like more um, intimate discoveries than you think you're gonna find. So, um, so I guess if I had to have an archeological specialty I don't know. I, this is the thing I like about being a journalist is I get to go to four different sites. And like every time I would talk to archeologists about the fact that I was doing this book and I was looking at three other cities besides theirs, they would get these like billion yard stares and be like, oh, good luck with that. How, I don't know how you're gonna do that. You know, cause each city could be 12 books, you know? So, um, so I think I like being able to like parachute in and, and then Go to the next place. <laughs> so, it's, so it's interesting in our in archaeology, um, we, we there, there are certain kinds of people that are drawn into pottery and certain kinds of people that are drawn into bones and seeds. Mm -hmm. uh, I 
I'm just going to guess based on your personality that you're a landscape person or gadflies. We're all over the place all the time. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, that's what I, what I really wanted to capture in this book is what does it mean to try to study a whole city? Um, what's, what does it take to, to take in, like, what are, where are all the roads? What are the different ethnic neighborhoods? What are the, um, where do the rich people live? Where do the poor people live? Where are the bars? Um, where are the places that people hung out and danced? Um, which every city has, by the way, this is like a universal thing. Cities have essentially nightclubs. Um, you know, they have, they have places where people hang out and party. Um, so I always, yeah. Yeah. So I think I would, yeah, I'd be a landscape person. I'd be like really interested in like bricks in the street. The best. It's the best. Mm -hmm. um, it's an obsession of mine and my husband and I don't argue about anything except who gets to delineate them by bricks we find. So we figure <laughs> it's probably okay. Um, so, so I know we're, 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 we have too much to talk about. We're going to run out of time. And I know we, we wanted to delve into the technology um, which was building off the landscape theme. Um, and, and similar to my first question, which was uh, my question about archaeologists, which is biased and self-serving. This too is biased and self-serving. I want to focus on the, the amazing work um, that you talk about in your book that, um, that Damian Evans, Dr. Damian Evans has done at Encore revealing you know, this, this extraordinary landscape. So if you wouldn't mind sharing with the people tuning in uh, you know, what, what his work is with lasers and how you see it being applied in other places, or are there places you'd like to see that technology applied? Yeah, and I'm gonna throw this question back to you in a second. Um, so one of the, um, as I mentioned at the beginning, um, one of the things about uh, contemporary archeological work is that it's, it's revealing more about the lives of ordinary people, workers, um, enslaved people, uh, women, uh, people who are often left out of the story. And one of the ways that that's happening uh, oddly, is through the use of remote sensing technologies, uh, like LIDAR, for example, or like uh, satellite photography. Um, and what uh, Damien has done uh, is that he, you know, he studies um, Angkor and, and the Khmer culture. And, um, you know, until about, I want to say until about 20 years ago, uh, the, the wisdom in the archaeological community about Angkor, and, and keep in mind that uh, a lot of the people working on this are not um, themselves Khmer. Uh, so it was a lot of people kind of coming in from Europe and, and, and kind of judging what they thought was true about Angkor. Um, and what the received wisdom was, was that um, although there are many inscriptions at Angkor, um, that say that the city had about a million people in it at its height, which would have been about a thousand years ago, um, that can't be true because how could it, this Southeast Asian city uh, be so big uh, when it exists in this tropical climate, which is so um, difficult? And um, Europeans had decided that the temple enclosures at Angkor Wat and Angkor Thom, which are very famous, you've probably seen them in movies, um, that those were the cities. And, and because they were surrounded by walls, just like European cities. And we know that people lived inside them, hundreds of people could fit inside them. And so um, it took using LIDAR to gain evidence that in fact, that original number written in the inscriptions on the walls of a million people 
was probably very close to accurate. And what uh, Damien and his colleagues did, and he worked with a team, a local team of uh, Cambodian scientists, as well as um, with a, a large kind of group of um, European funded uh, organizations. Um, they took a LIDAR device, they mounted it on a helicopter, and they just flew over top of the area all around the Angkor Temple enclosures and just flew back and forth the same way you would do any kind of scientific investigation with any kind of remote sensing instrument. And what they were able to uncover by bouncing lasers off the surface of the planet uh, and looking at you know, minute differences in elevation, they were able to uncover roads. They were able to uncover the foundations for houses. They uncovered uh, indentations where people had had pools or had um, reservoirs. Uh, and of course, we already knew that the city had had canals and reservoirs, but because there's these stone ones at the very center at the core of Angkor, but he uncovered all of this landscape surrounding the temple enclosures, which absolutely could have held close to a million people. So because LIDAR allows you to essentially kind of peel the jungle back from the, the land, um, suddenly the city came into relief. Uh, and this is a, a terrific uh, way of trying to understand landscapes um, because people in, uh, in Angkor were building with perishable materials. Uh, the jungle kind of overtook the area, farms were built on top of it, but those, um, the markers of the roads and the houses remained. Um, and, uh, and this is kind of where I wanna turn it over to you, Sarah, because you've done incredible groundbreaking work with satellite imagery in Egypt. And I wonder if you can talk about how that fits into this story. So, yeah, so I think it ties into the, the larger theme that you bring up in, in your book about how cities evolve and change over time when we just make assumptions about them based on what's there. But there's so much we, we can't see. Um, you know, so many uh, in indigenous cities and places in, in the Americas um, are, are just vastly larger and the same, you know, with what, um, with what Damien found at, at Angkor. Um, so, so really, this is what we're finding everywhere we look with, with whether it's we're using lasers or, or, or drones or, or satellite imagery. They allow us to look at relationships between landscape and site, and we're able to see that these sites were, were so much bigger. And even our idea of what an archaeological site is has changed. So is it the city? Is it the suburbs? Is it the farmland surrounding it? Is it the environment? What about the boundaries? What about, you know, uh, places that are farther removed that are still part of the larger, um, uh, part of the larger city? So, and a lot of these questions are really, really hard to answer, but what the satellites do is allow us to find these places. They allow us to see in different parts of the light, light spectrum and, and like a space-based CAT scan, kind of pinpoint areas to look. Um, sometimes it's finding sites, sometimes it's mapping out settlements. You can clearly see a lot of um, outlines of cities and places like Egypt and in Turkey and Iraq and in Peru. Um, and the, 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 the challenge with archaeology, you know, Italy talked about these very well-funded projects. Most projects are not very well-funded. Um, so we go into the field with very limited time and resources and they help us to pinpoint where to look. Um, and so just this idea of there being just thousands and thousands and thousands of, of previously unknown cities and villages and towns and temples in places like Egypt, where there's such a rich history of exploration going back to the you know, 1800s, over 200 years. And, and I, I estimate we've only uncovered about a thousandth of 1% 
of ancient Egypt. Wow. Um, I think, and, and, and compare Egypt to say other fields, and we know sort of Egyptology is its own rich field. Yeah, I think the numbers are similar everywhere. So we've just barely begun to scratch the surface of what's out yeah. there. And I think what's really important to remember is that part, this, this goes back to what I was saying about different urban traditions. And because archeology span uh, has come from the West and has come from kind of Europe and European America, it's, we often bring our preconceptions about what a city should be into the field. And so, because in Europe, in Europe, they were building with stone and their cities looked a certain way, when Europeans arrived at Angkor or when they arrive in, at cities in the Americas like Cahokia, they're like, oh, well, I don't see any stone here. So it must not really be a big city, <laughs> you know, like this can't be very fancy then. Um, and that's just because different urban traditions build with different materials. And what we found now in the Americas, which I think is super exciting, uh, and this is because of the fact that environmental scientists are working with archeologists, um, now we're seeing people do things like core sampling uh, in the Amazon, looking for signs of soil mixing and burning. Because one of the ways that, one of the kind of signatures of, of urbanization is that people in the Amazon would do uh, burns, controlled burns. Uh, and then they would also mix the soil to plant trees and other kinds of uh, crops that they were interested in. And so if you can take a core and you can see, okay, here's the naturally occurring soil. Oh, suddenly we have burning, we have mixing. And then you can start to say, all right, um, this was a settlement. Um, maybe the, the great houses in it are gone, but we know that this was a settled area. We can see that there's way more rubber trees than we ever could possibly find naturally occurring. Somebody planted these. Um, and so I think it's, we have like these new tools are letting us see that cities don't always look like a European city um, and that an ancient city might look like canals and burning and, and mounds. Um, and that those are just as complex and, uh, you know, historically important. And maybe if we focused a little more on indigenous traditions, we, we wouldn't have the number of problems we have today. So I'm going to ask you one more question before I dive into Q&A from, from the audience, and that kind of lead, lead, leads into it. Um, so, you know, we're, we're now, of course, talking about, about um, space travel and the idea of, of living on other, on other planets someday, although we have to fix everything on Earth first before we think about that. <laughs> good, luck. Right? Yeah, good luck. Good luck with that. Let me know how that goes. Um, <laughs> so how, do you, how do you think the cities of the past could or should influence the design of human cities both here but also potentially in the future on, on other planets? What can we learn from them as we think about building, building better places here? It's such a good question. And I know you think about this a lot too. I think um, it goes back to considering uh, indigenous urban traditions, um, considering non-Western urban traditions, because a lot of the time the cities that we're looking at, like say Angkor, um, which is at actually the nexus of two monsoon systems. Um, so this was an incredibly massive city at the heart of a massive empire, um, which was dealing with climate extremes that are now becoming a lot more common throughout the world uh, because of climate change. We're starting to see statistically, it's going to be more likely that we're gonna encounter extreme weather. So um, I think understanding how cities have been built in other 
times and other places really helps us understand how to build cities that are resilient against uh, climate disasters, against drought. Um, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier that in the Americas, there was a tradition of burning, um, of controlled burns. Um, I live in California where the state is now on fire every year. Uh, and a lot of that uh, can be controlled with controlled burns. And indeed the indigenous people who lived in Canada, in, in California, uh, before we, before Europeans settled here did use controlled burning. Um, so I think that's really simple stuff. And then I think there's also philosophical questions too. Um, one of the hypotheses about Cahokia, the indigenous city in the Americas that I wrote about is that um, it was never built to last, that there is a, um, a tradition of indigenous city building, which views cities as temporary and doesn't think of them as uh, monuments that have to endure through the eons, the way Notre Dame endures through the eons, that cities are something you build because you feel like it with your friends. And maybe you make it really big, maybe it lasts a couple hundred years, but it's just an experiment and it doesn't have to keep going. Um, and it seems as if that may have been kind of the cultural attitude around Cahokia that people just, you know, there were a lot of reasons why the city just wasn't appealing anymore. And it wasn't like people thought of it as a great tragedy. They were like, well, we're moving on now, moving, you know, north up the Mississippi or south back down or going back to farming. And it's, you know, it's just the way things are. And I think having that attitude that cities could be temporary and that they could then um, kind of go back to being natural landscape uh, is a real, it's really intriguing to me. I think that that could be uh, something we could learn from in the future that um, maybe cities should be more like ecosystems and that they don't have to last forever and that they can be changing all the time, so. Uh, we have so much to talk about and uh, I know, I know. <laughs> ah, can we talk for like a year I know okay we should take we should take audience questions we should you should so so this is, is a question from Sarah uh she asks in any of the cities how does the urban planning show what was culturally important to its ancient inhabitants Ooh, that is such a good question and of course it's one of those questions where there's no definitive answer because of course we are we're speculating, um, but each, I, I think um, it's interesting to um, look at public spaces um, in cities because they do tend to reflect, um, we, we can sort of speculate about how the social arrangements of the city um, functioned. So for example, at, Chitalhuyuk, um, which is a city that's really a proto-city. I mean, it kind of comes so early in the urban tradition that um, there's a lot of things about it that uh, really don't look like cities now. And it didn't really have any public space. It's a city that's built, um, it's kind of like a strip mall. It's like a bunch of buildings squished together. Um, and it's probably, it was only about one story. Uh, but all of the doorways were in the roofs. So you'd climb up a ladder, you'd get up on the roofs, and then you climb back down into your uh, house. And each house is kind of roughly the same size. So you don't see any big castles. You don't see uh, any temples, as far as we can tell. There's no marketplace. Um, it's literally a city that doesn't seem to have 
a built public space that's an indoor space. Um, you know, as opposed to once you get to ancient Rome and Pompeii, you have these massive theaters, you have, um, you know, massive indoor spaces um, or semi-indoor spaces where people gather together. The Forum, for example, famous uh, semi-indoor Roman space uh, for rich white guys and um, or rich upper-class guys, I should say, not white guys. Um, so at Chitalhoyuk, we have to think that they, we know that they gathered together. It's a big group of people. So they must've done it outdoors. They must've always had um, outdoor uh, you know, bonfires and um, celebrations that were under the stars, um, or maybe they would set up temporary tents. Um, we know that they definitely would have had that kind of technology. So I love thinking about that, like how does that change your perspective to not have large indoor meeting spaces? Um, and then at Angkor, Angkor has so many ceremonial spaces um, and it, it's so many um, spaces that are devoted to um, you know, Hinduism and Buddhism and then kind of hybrids of, of both. And um, the, the spiritual expression uh, in the city of, um, you know, the spiritual expressions around sort of uh, recreating like Hindu um, origin stories in the actual layout of the city with these massive reservoirs that represent kind of the waters from which the earth um, emerged. Um, it, it's interesting because those reservoirs, like I said, they have this symbolic significance. Um, they, they are kind of an attempt to, to recreate um, an origin myth um, in architecture, but they're also completely pragmatic because this is a city that would have a really wet season and then a really dry season. And so you need a place to store your water. So it's great if you can be like, I have a symbolic justification for this, but also actually we need water. So like you, you get to have them both. And so you can see how in cities, um, cultural stories and traditions kind of lend themselves to pragmatic architectural decisions or sometimes the opposite. Sometimes your cultural beliefs uh, actually drive you to make really poor uh, architectural decisions. So, uh, or, or urban planning decisions. So that's kind of an interesting balance to see each city striking. So I thought this is a really fascinating question um, from Libby. She asks, has your research led you to develop any opinions about tourism in these archeological areas? Yeah, that is a really good question, which I, I've actually been thinking about a lot lately um, because there was a proposal uh, before the Cambodian government um, to build a giant casino yeah. right next to Angkor like literally like 500 meters from the entrance to the Angkor Archaeological Park. They were going, this company called Naga World. Um, Naga is of course, one of the um, creatures that shelters the Buddha when, um, when he's being uh, threatened. Uh, the Naga is like this big uh, snake with many heads. And anyway, so Naga World um, is, uh, has a huge casino in Phnom Penh and they wanted to build, they were gonna make it into like a theme park and all this kind of stuff. And I get it, like Cambodia wants tourism money. I live in San Francisco and the vast majority of money that comes into our city is from tourists. So I get it. Um, I understand wanting to support service workers and hotels and things like that. Um, on the other hand, 
the idea that there would have been, and, and I should say this proposal was almost accepted. And just, I think last week, the government said, no, we're not doing it. Um, and so I was, I had this huge sigh of relief because I, I just was having nightmares of like Disneyland basically next to this archeological treasure and what that would do um, to, to the park and to preservation, it just ugh, so nightmarish. Um, so I think that maybe that kind of encapsulates my ambivalence because I, a lot of these archeological sites are in places where tourism is a huge industry and it supports local people. It doesn't exclusively support, um, you know, this money that comes into the local community. Um, you know, some of the money does go back out to tourism companies that are not located there and that's a problem. Um, at the same time, you tourists mess things up. There's no way to get around that. You know, people steal stuff all the time. Um, there's actually a display at Pompeii of things that people stole and then sent back because they were worried that it was bad luck to steal them. Um, like bad things happened in their life and they were like, screw it, man, I'm sending this back. Um, and so, like, um, and, and at, at Angkor, this is a huge problem, people stealing the antiquities there. Um, so it's like, you wanna strike a balance. You want people to go, you want them to see this history. You want them to be able to experience these wonders that our ancestors created, but you also don't want them to steal crap. You don't want them to do graffiti all over it. You don't want them to like spill their beer on, you know, like a really rare piece of jewelry. Um, so it, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough question, but I think in the end, I am in favor of having ethical tourism. Like you've got to, you've got to keep these sites open to the public and, and, you know, help the local communities by paying them, you know, paying them to maintain the place. Uh, it's really important. It's so hard, you know, with, with the work we do, we go to sites, we're there for a month or two, then we leave. You know, we try to support our local communities because I, I couldn't do the work in Egypt without the people you see behind me. They're the, you know, they're the backbone of, of why the work is successful and what do you do? And especially, you know, not every site can be an anchor. You know, you have thousands of sites all over the world that are, that are so important. And yet tourists aren't going to go to see a bunch of crumbling bits in the sand. And maybe, maybe some are, but it's not the same. So what, what do you do? And, and it's so hard because of course we come in, you can't tell governments what to do. Um, so yeah, this is a huge issue within within archaeology generally. All right, I, want, I think we have time for one more question. Uh, so let me. Uh, I think good one. All right, let's get a good one. Let's get a good one. Um, oh, this is a great one. This is from an anonymous attendee. What was the most surprising thing you learned about each city? Okay, so each city, <laughs> I'll give you like, I'll give you just like little teeny things from each city and then you'll have to read the book to get the full story. Um, so at Çatalhöyük, which is the Neolithic city in Turkey, um, people built, buried their loved ones under their beds. And we know this because we've seen this skeletons that have been excavated from underneath people's bed platforms. So there's a whole story about why that happened. Um, it's an incredible spiritual practice. Um, at Pompeii, my biggest surprise was actually most people didn't die in the eruption of Vesuvius. I, like a lot of people, I saw the movie, I saw the documentary with like the dude from Game of Thrones. And so I thought I knew <laughs> um, how it had all happened. I thought pretty much everyone had been uh, killed by the volcano. But in fact, um, it seems like only about 10% of the population perished. 
and there was a there were a huge number of refugees. And uh, what happened to those refugees is really fascinating. And so in the book, I talk a lot about how um, how the Roman government came in and um, dealt with these uh, refugees from this disaster and wound up actually treating them pretty well, which is, um, again, very surprising to me. Um, at Angkor, I think the thing that surprised me most um, was, I mean, hmm, I think it was the fact that it had been so recently that we had uncovered how big the city was because when you visit knowing that it seems so obvious um and so uh that was really fascinating the other thing that i hadn't realized was that was actually how much um how much of the engineering in the city had been affected by um political decisions and so one of the things i talk about is how um the kings would often order their engineers to build stuff and the engineers would be like, no, don't. Uh. And, and, they, and so there's this kind of tug of war between good water engineering and like being um, spiritually appropriate. Um, and so that was really interesting just because it felt very modern, like this idea that like, there's certain scientists out there and engineers who were like, uh, we really need to do this to preserve the planet. And then other people are like, for political and, and, and spiritual reasons, I say no. Um, so it felt very modern. Um, Cahokia, everything about Cahokia, I think is surprising for lots of people. I think the thing maybe that's most surprising about Cahokia is that so few people in the United States know about it. This was a, an enormous metropolis that had a huge, at its center, it had this huge uh, earthen pyramid whose footprint is about the same as the Great Pyramid at Giza. Um, it has a flattened top, so it's not quite as, as tall, uh, but this was incredible. Like when Europeans stumbled across this place uh, in the 18th century, they were like, oh, whoa, there was like a giant city here, what the hell? Um, and you know, the importance of the city has literally been suppressed by you know, white settlers not wanting to acknowledge this incredible, um, magnificent urban creation um, and it's really only since the 1980s that it's been a, pu a public park. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site now. You can go visit. It's amazing. Please go visit Cahokia and give them some money because it's, you know, they're, they're not uh, super well-funded. Um, and I just, like I said, every time I tell people about it, I'm surprised at how surprised they are because uh, this is literally... This is the United States' greatest archaeological treasure, like literally. And we're not taught about it in school. And uh, again, the reasons are obvious. It has to do with, you know, the, the suppression of, you know, indigenous culture. Um, and I'm really happy to see that turning around a little bit, but it needs to turn around a lot more, like a lot more, like a whole bunch of turns. <laughs> um, and then I'll be happy.